0: Let's now turn to Ephesians chapter 5, and we'll begin reading at verse 15 down through verse 24. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I included in our scripture reading the uh, verses previous uh, to our text, because it's important that we uh, hear the instruction of God's word to us this morning in the context of God's call to spirit-filled living. Uh, the command there in verse 18, be filled with the spirit, is then it's, uh, it's fleshed out. It's explained what that really means in those uh, three participles that follow in terms of uh, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, uh, singing and making melody in their heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. And this is kind of like an outline of what it means to live a spirit-filled life, a life that is characterized by praise and worship, thanksgiving, and, uh, and submission. Now, indeed, there is a kind of mutual submission that must be practiced among Christians. Uh, Peter also says to submit to one another, but there's a sense in which that's kind of an improper use of the word submit. But uh, it's certainly the case that Christians are to yield to one another. They're to exhibit a kind of humi- humility that gives way to the needs and desires of others in a way that so shows a graciousness and a humility as opposed to pride. But when Paul says submitting to one another... Uh, in the fear of the Lord, he's also introducing uh, a subject that is then fleshed out in terms of various relationships that are characterized, on the one hand, by a submission uh, to those who are over us in different ways in the Lord. And the first example that he gives of this is the wives' uh, submission to their husbands. He'll go on to speak of the relationship between children and their fathers, and, uh, servants and their masters and the mutual responsibility then that, uh, these others have. But, uh, Paul begins by, by fleshing out this principle of Christian living in terms of, uh, God's call for Christian wives to submit to their husbands. And I want to emphasize, uh, the, the term Christian wives here. We hear these words in our text, wives, submit to your own husbands. And uh, we know that the uh, the world recoils in horror at such language as, uh, as if this is uh, uh, an expression of a kind of oppressive uh, patriarchy that characterized the uh, ideas of a former day and those days are gone and good riddance to them. And uh the very idea of submission to husbands provokes all kinds of negative uh reactions. And that ought not to surprise us. You no, know, we might just expect that and uh especially as our world moves farther and farther away from the influence of the Christian faith and its uh its norms, its views with respect to marriage and sexuality and human rights and freedoms, and on and on we could go. And so, of course, it rejects the high and holy teaching of God's word as it pertains to human relationships, as God has structured them. And we might also say that if the professing church is infiltrated by the values and the outlook of this world, well, of course, it also will dislike such passages. They'll simply react to them in a negative way and quickly hasten to describe what they do not mean without giving attention to what they actually do mean. Now, that's not necessarily because of a, a deliberate rejection of the authority of God's word. Often it's a reflection of misunderstanding and prejudice, and there can be a lot of reasons for that. Certainly it's a passage that uh, has been and can be and continually is abused and uh used in a harmful way. And that indeed could also provoke a reaction. But fundamentally, if people do not trust in Christ and submit to him as their Lord, as the Savior also of the body, we can't expect them to take pleasure in his will. We can't expect them really to be able to follow it when it comes to life in Christ. And that's why, again, a Christian minister should never perform a wedding in which he would ask unbelieving uh, people to make Christian vows that only a believer could really make in good conscience and with understanding. I would never ask an unbeliever to promise to uh, love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself. Or how he, could he possibly do that if he himself does not know the love of Christ for him and is not motivated and moved by those spiritual uh, con- concerns and considerations with respect to his relationship to his wife. They would be asking him to make a rash vow that he couldn't possibly uh, fulfill unless he himself knows the Savior. And likewise, I wouldn't ask a wife to promise to submit to her husband as the church does to Christ. If she knows nothing of that humble spirit that willingly yields to the will of the Lord in loving obedience to Him, that would be irresponsible. A profession of Christian faith must come before any profession uh, of Christian vows when it comes to marriage. These things go together and in the proper order. At the start of this series on the relationship between husbands and wives, we might preface this whole teaching uh, by the statement, for Christians only, for those who know the Lord Jesus Christ and who are indwelt by his spirit only. Now that doesn't mean that these sermons have nothing to say to those who may be unbelievers, even present among us. But the first word to them is not follow this teaching of scripture. This is in the practical part of this epistle concerning how Christians are to live. No, you gotta go back to the first part and uh find out how Christians become Christians through Christ, so God calls Christian wives to submit to their husbands, and you may have noticed that this is number one in a series of messages i I have planned two sermons on this uh this passage, and uh we're only gonna take the time to cover those first two points indicated in your outline. and So if I don't answer questions that you might have this morning, hopefully I will uh, next time at some point. Not as if this passage presents an entire and complete uh, depiction of everything that pertains to Christian marriage. I wouldn't presume to claim that. And so I don't uh, also pretend to uh, answer every possible important question with respect to the relationship between husbands and wives in our consideration of these verses before us. But we are going to be looking at the uh, crucial teaching here of what has been recognized as one of the, the the main passages uh in the New Testament that spell out these respective roles of husbands and wives, how they are to live as Christians in this nearest relationship. So we begin then uh, with the... Uh, Specific point that wives are called to submit uh, to your own husbands. That's the language of, uh, verse 22. Wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And, uh, you might uh, think that I'm belaboring an obvious point here, but it still deserves some attention that wives are called to submit not to men in general, but to submit to their husbands, their own husbands. And that language, I trust we'll see, has significance also for our understanding of marriage. The Bible doesn't teach a kind of general submission of women to men. It doesn't teach that women, uh, for instance, uh, cannot be in positions of authority over men in the civil realm of government, uh, of law enforcement, or of business. The Bible doesn't teach that women must not hold positions such as judges or CEOs or company owners. Now, there are, there are natural considerations and there are, uh, biblical principles that are such that ordinarily, uh, many or most of these positions are generally held by men. But again, that's not, because the Bible prohibits men from occupying these positions. That's rather a reflection of the, the different, uh, not only the different roles that the scripture assigns to men and women, but, but natural differences that characterize men and women. And so there are many instances in which, uh, women hold such positions. There's nothing wrong with that. It may be, uh, an exception to the norm. It may be an increasing exception to the norm, but that may also reflect a move away from the biblical teaching with respect to principles in which the differences uh, between men and women actually play out in home life and in our culture. But the point that I'm making now is that this principle of of wives submitting to their husbands is not some prohibition of women acting, or exercising any kind of position whatsoever in society. And if women do hold such positions, we ought not to think that they somehow deserve less respect by people who are under them in such positions, or they deserve less pay than men who occupy these positions deserve. So it's important to recognize that that we're talking about The the scripture's teaching specifically with respect to the submission of wives to their own husbands, not some general notion that women must always be in submission to men. And the idea of women exercising authority in any capacity is somehow forbidden by scripture. And that connection, we must also say that neither is the church governed by men over women. There are different roles with respect to offices in the church. There are different roles uh, with respect to authoritative teaching in the church. And the Bible makes clear that the church offices and authoritative teaching in the church is something that scripture assigns to men and not to women. But the Bible's call, for example, in Hebrews thirteen seventeen, to obey those who rule over you and be submissive It applies to men just as well as to women, and it applies to men in the same way that it applies to women. So the Bible doesn't teach that the the church is governed by men in general over women in general. That's not to remove the distinctions that exist with respect to differing roles or uh, ways of service in the church of Jesus Christ by His appointment. But I suppose this is rather negative so far, but what we want to consider next is the fact that this possessive language, her own husband, is really, uh, it's quite rich, because it assumes that uh, this submission of wives takes place in a relationship, and it's a relationship of, of mutual ownership, and it's the kind of mutual ownership that we hear in the Song of Solomon, In the words, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. There's a mutual close relationship of oneness and mutual ownership in one another that is expressed even in such language. We hear it uh, in New Testament passages such as as, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 where it says, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and each woman have her own husband. A simple verse that rules out polygamy. A simple verse that uh doesn't even imagine or envision such things as same-sex so-called marriage. No, marriage is defined even in such a passage as a, a man having his own wife or a woman having her own husband. But notice that language of, of ownership. In fact, we go on in this passage in verse 4, it says, The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. There's an equality here. There's a mutual ownership in love that is reflected in this one flesh union in which one another's bodies are cherished in love out of this sense of mutual belonging actually this language and this teaching that we hear assumes a biblical and and covenantal view of marriage where marriage is seen not simply as kind of a pragmatic relationship that's based on some kind of a of a of a contract but it's based on God's purpose and design and it's defined in terms of a relationship that's grounded upon promise and that's characterized then by faithfulness and loyalty and love. That's what we hear in Malachi where the Lord reveals his case against uh, God's people, particularly the men. God has a grievance with them. He is not accepting their offerings. Why? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth with whom you have dealt treacherously, yet she is your companion. Companion. You know, in our book, in our forms for marriage, this companionship is placed first in terms of the purpose of marriage. The wife is not a domestic servant. The wife is not property. The wife is not simply someone to bear children and look after the household. The wife is a companion. In a relationship of friendship, mutual care. She is your companion and your wife by covenant. A relationship grounded upon mutual promise, mutual love and loyalty and faithfulness. A one flesh union. Did he not make them one? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Husbands and wives serve together for God's kingdom, for the propagation of the human race and the extension of this kingdom in their partnership, in the service of God. There is this mutual kind of possession and ownership in this covenant of marriage that really is foundational to our, our thinking and our understanding of such words as we have in our text. Wives submit to your own husbands. And secondly, wives submit to your husbands in respect for God's appointment. In verse twenty-three, we read further the reason for such submission: for the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. First uh, Corinthians chapter. 11 or chapter, yes, 11 verse 3 teaches the same thing where uh, we read, I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man and the head of Christ is God. It's a relationship, uh, that is rooted in creation. Man or Adam was created first, then woman, Eve, and she was uh, created from man. Paul goes on in First Corinthians 7 to say, uh, "Man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man." And so there's a kind of creational order structure that God uh, defined and ordained from the beginning. And, uh, and yet they are joined by marriage in a one flesh union. And so it's a relationship in which there is equality. And that's primary because man and woman are together made in the image of God, but in a different order and, uh, with different roles. And in connection with our text here, God made man the head as husband in the relationship to his wife, you see, this uh, this passage also assumes that Adam and Eve are are the model for every marriage. They're the paradigm. When God joined Adam and Eve together in marriage, He is uh, uh, setting the pattern for every union in which God joins a husband and wife together by their voluntary uh, commitment to that relationship. So. Man is the head of the wife, and uh, headship in this connection here involves leadership and that's obvious when you consider the um the model here that's given as Christ is head of the church. in fact, earlier on in this book, we uh heard reference to christ's headship as the one who has been exalted uh, to god's right hand over over principalities and powers and every name that is named and is head over all things to the church. Now there it's not speaking of Christ being head of the church specifically, but rather it's defining him as head over all things. And that's describing a position of lordship and authority. And we learn from our text, as well as other places, that God was pleased to constitute uh, the marriage relationship in this way. God was pleased to constitute it in this way. And very important, the way we think about it. And that uh, that means that it's not a matter of men or husbands uh, being bigger or better or stronger or smarter or holier or wiser or more important than than their wives it's a matter of divine order it's a matter that was established before the fall and uh it's a matter that is also upheld uh, despite the fall and the consequences of the fall into sin going back to genesis we we find that genesis 3 particularly verse uh 16 um teaches this here we have The Lord's word, after Adam and Eve sinned and uh, gave heed to the voice of the serpent, and uh, the Lord cursed the serpent, and he gives this promise of the seed of the woman, eventually crushing his head. But then he speaks to the woman, saying, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Uh, Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. That language, your desire shall be for your husband. now, remember the story. think of what had happened here. Um, it was unnatural, we must say for Eve uh, to heed the voice of the serpent rather than to heed the word of the Lord that he hurt that she heard from her husband. The prohibition of eating from the fruit of the tree of life was given to. Adam before the formation of Eve. No doubt Adam communicated that word of the Lord to Eve. And it was unnatural for Eve to give heed to the voice of the servant rather than to the voice of God through her husband. And then it was wrong for Adam uh, to heed the voice of your wife. That's the language that God uses there. It's wrong for Adam to heed the voice of Eve and to eat of the forbidden fruit. Now, that doesn't mean that it's wrong for husbands to listen to their wives. God said to Abraham, listen to your wife. And husbands must listen to their wives. They must pay attention to them. And uh, they should heed their good counsel and their good advice, too. So the point is not that husbands are not to listen to their wives. But uh, the point is that by Adam failing to heed the word of God, and in a sense submitting himself to the example and the invitation of his wife. Everything was thrown out of disorder. God's order was was overturned. And because of sin, Eve would continue to desire to master her husband. That's how we might well read that language there in uh, verse 6 of chapter 3, where it says, Your desire shall be for your husband. Now, the reason why we uh, hear it that way is because almost the same words are used in the very next chapter uh, in God's word to Cain after he was upset because God accepted Abel's offering and he rejected Cain's offering and Cain was angry and the Lord spoke to him And he said to Cain in verse 7, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you. But you should rule over it. In other words, sin is personified as, as a beast, you might say, who desires to gain the mastery of Cain. But he should rule over sin. And that's the same kind of language that's used there in Genesis, uh, three verse 16 to Ave, uh, to Eve, your desire shall be for your husband. Your desire to, will be to master him and he shall rule over you. See, that's the basis for, uh, the, the assertion that this order that God established was not only instituted before the fall, but it was upheld despite the fall. But when you listen to this description of the state of things, you might well conclude that sounds like a pretty unhappy kind of situation. And indeed, that would be a very unhappy situation were it not for Christ. Because in Christ, God's good order is restored. Christ obeyed where Adam failed. And we may say, and we ought to, Christ loved his bride and he gave himself for her. He died for the church. And his restoring grace then transforms what has become twisted and what has become broken by sin. So that marriage, which because of sin and the fall, becomes a scene of conflict so often, a scene of competition, a scene of rivalry, of mutual hurt and pain and sin, is changed to mutual care. Uh, mutual loyalty to law. Some of you might recognize that language. It's actually taken from the form of uh, of marriage, where it describes the outcome of husbands and wives fulfilling uh, God's word in terms of how they're to live together in love. And what they share in that relationship is mutual loyalty to God's will, to law. And so we must never think that in the Bible's teaching, uh, to wives to submit to their own husbands, we have a situation, well, where, well, the, the wives, they're law keepers and the husbands are lords. You no, know, husbands as well as wives must be law keepers. They must submit themselves to God's good order. No, for Christian wives, this means that in addition to creation, there is a gospel-centered reason. That is added to God's call to submit to her husband. It's because Christ, who is her ultimate head, he wants her to do it. And so she submits to her husband, not as unto her husband, but as unto the Lord. Again, that raises all kinds of questions. We're going to have to wait for that till next time to try to flesh this out, what it actually looks like, what it means. But the starting point is a way of thinking about the relationship that's transformed by Christ. So it's a matter of Christian service for husbands and wives in their respective uh, roles with regard to this matter. In fact, in this connection also for husbands, this description of their place in the relationship also means a compelling call and a responsibility that is also rooted in God's grace. The husband is head of the wife. I will never say to a husband, you should be the head of your wife. That would be to change an indicative into an imperative. In other words, the passage does not say husbands should be the head of their wives. It says the husband is the head of their wife. It's by God's appointment. It's not like a nomination that they could decline. It's not something they can refuse. It's not something that husbands can escape and say, no, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna follow that teaching of the Bible. I'm not gonna be the head of my wife. Well, God says you are. You can't get out of it. You're either gonna do it very badly or you're going to do it well. You can abuse that relationship by saying, I'm not going to give leadership in the relationship. And you can neglect God's call to give godly, loving leadership to your wife. Or you can abuse it in another direction with harshness, with selfishness. But both of these things relate to their role that God has given them as head of their wives. They can either fail miserably at it or by God's grace, they may learn to fulfill it more and more. As a member of Christ's church and of his body, you men... You submit to your ultimate head, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you live by his saving grace toward you. Because he's not only the head of the church, he's not only the ruler of the church, but he rules it in grace and kindness and mercy. He's the savior of the body. He is the one who nourishes and cherishes his church. He died for her. He's purifying her. And that's a comfort for all of us. But this reference also here in connection with the description of uh, the relationship to husbands, to their wives, patterned after Christ's relationship as head of the church also involves a very compelling consideration that husbands ought to take to heart. And that is that in the exercise of their calling, their appointment by God to be faithful In his designation as the head of their wives, they ought to do so like their Savior, who is the Savior of the body. And so they ought to exercise that leadership in love, in a way that serves not to harm, not to hurt, not to domineer in a self-centered way, but in a way to save, to protect her body, literally, not to abuse her. Or mistreat her, but to care for her bodily, and to care for her emotional life, to care for her spiritual life after this beautiful pattern of Christ's headship. So we, yes, we're focusing on the the calling to wives here, but we can't even listen to it and understand it without recognizing that along with it, there is this compelling call to husbands. Whom Christ has appointed to be head of their wives and to exercise that then after the pattern of his gracious, saving love. Amen.